point of view of the scary road, especially if you're here for the first time. So we are in the second week today of a seven-week series on the subject of personal transformation of change. Everybody's um, thinking about this town year, New Year's resolutions, that sort of thing, so coming up on that. Looking at what scripture says about how to change. And the first thing I want to do is for those of you who weren't here last week, do a very quick recap to catch you up to speed on what we covered so far. So four main things from last week. Number one, everybody wants to change. Everybody wants to change, and everybody knows they should change. Everybody knows there are things wrong with them that they, they want to be different. And we're not talking about when you're on your best day of the year. Most people write themselves okay when they're on the best day of the year. We're talking about when you're not. And you know there's stuff that's really wrong with you and you don't like it. Everybody wants to change. If you don't want to change, if you're kind of satisfied with yourself the way you are, this probably is not the church for you. It's not for the next seven weeks. So, number one, everybody wants to change. Number two, resolutions and direct effort and, and willpower don't work. They work in the short term, they work for small things, they don't work in the long term, they don't work for big things because they don't get you deep enough. They just are kind of on this shallow level of conduct. They don't go all the way to our hearts, all the way to the core of who we are. Number three, the only way to really change then is with God's help. The only way to really change is to have God come shine a light into the dark places of your heart, show you what's really going on, and transform you by His power from inside out. And then number four, and this is kind of what we focused last week, number four, for that to happen requires your cooperation. God doesn't just do it automatically. He doesn't do it the ask of one time. It requires your sustained cooperation, attention, effort, as well as you try to give Him space to work on your life. We focused there, and we kind of ended by saying we landed the conclusion that there's kind of two dead-end paths to change and one high road in the middle. So to the left, there's this path of trying by direct effort to change yourself, willpower, resolutions. That's a dead end. To the right, there's this, this kind of religious, spiritual path of just asking God to change you and sitting back and waiting for it to happen. That's a dead end. And in the middle, there's this high road of asking God to come into your life and change you, but participating with him, cooperating, giving him effort, attention, and time. And since then, over you know, another period of years, watching him, watching him work. And one disclaimer or um, caveat that I want to make clear that I did last week is when we're talking about this process over the next six weeks, now, the cooperating with God to let him change <coughs> We're not talking about things that you have to do to be a Christian or to call yourself a Christian. That's easy. All you have to do to be a Christian is say, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. That's it. It's over. It's done. All you have to do to make God love you is say, God, please forgive me and take me as I am. He already loves you. He may you know, accept you if you say that. That's it. We're not talking about that. We're not talking about how you become a Christian. We're talking about how you make Christianity, quote unquote, work. For you, how you make it make a difference in your life? Because I've heard people say, plenty of people say, yeah, I tried Christianity and it didn't really work for me. And I, I often think, well, it's probably because you just kind of sat there. You just sat there and expected it to just happen. And it doesn't work like that. God never promised to change people who didn't have time for them. Never promised to show up for people who expected Him to show up on their schedule. Never promised that. But he does promise over and over and over again in Scripture that if you give me the time, if you put yourself kind of in my realm repeatedly, I'll work on it. It'll change. There'll be a difference that you can see over the years. So 
that's what we're focused on this morning. And the, the process of doing that, we said last week, isn't necessarily as simple or straightforward. I mean, in some sense, all you have to do is cooperate with God. All you have to do is give God space to work. But, but in those kind of compact phrases, there's a lot going on. Kind of like saying, since today is um, the conference championship games, kind of like saying, all you have to do to win a football game is just have a good game plan, execute, play hard for 60 minutes. That's true, and that, that kind of is true, but there have been thousands of treatises written on those elements of the game of football. And it may surprise me now, but there have been many more thousands of treatises written on the ins and outs, the X's and O's of cooperating with God as he works on you and changes you. It's, it's, not, it's not necessarily a straightforward process. And what we're going to do over the next six weeks is kind of introduce some of the basic concepts in the framework. It's simple in that, like, like football in this regard too, you know, even a child can learn how to do it, but even genius level minds who study it their whole lives are still kind of challenged by material. So what we're going to do over the next five, six weeks is provide some of the basic concepts and tools, and um, what we're not doing is giving a foolproof path. There is no foolproof path. Because that's involved. You can't control it. And never guarantee a certain result. We're just talking about kind of how to head in the right direction. What's the path? You want to change, you want to become a different person. What's the path? How do you start walking that way? This morning's message is titled Thoughts. You pull out your insert, it's in your program, it's got the scripture verses on it. What we're going to be doing over the next few weeks is kind of breaking down the human personality into its various components. So this week is thoughts. Next week will be emotions and heart and applying to the real the choices and decisions. So this morning thoughts and there's three kind of headings that I want to look at this subject of thoughts under this morning. The first thing I want to do is, is um, talk about four different dimensions of thought. The second thing is then showing how our thinking has been corrupted along all four of those dimensions. And the third thing is kind of charting out a course to, to restructuring our minds. So first, the four dimensions of thought. Second, showing how our thinking has been corrupted along all four of those dimensions. And then third and finally, what's the course, starting course to restructuring our minds. So we'll look at those one at a time before we do this right Father, we look today at the way you want to change our thinking and the centrality of thought to who we are and to becoming a different person. Pray that you would open our minds, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would show us from your word the path that you have for us, and that you would encourage us, that you would motivate us to participate, that you would give us the words to say as we ask you to come and help us. In your name we pray. Amen. Thoughts is the obvious place to start. Derek on the different parts of the human being. Thoughts is, is clearly the place to start because that's where it starts for us. Thinking um, about thoughts and emotions and decisions, your thoughts come first. You have a thought and it kind of creates an emotion. You have a thought and you make a decision. And your thoughts are the only thing you have direct control over. You can choose what you think about. You can't choose how you feel. You can't choose these things that kind of push you to making a certain decision. So you start with thoughts because thoughts are the thing we have direct control over. The first thing I want to do, and this is going to seem a little bit kind of academic and dry and abstract and, and beside the point for a second, but it is going somewhere, I promise. The first thing I want to do is 
to describe four different dimensions of thought. No, it's not like something in textbook. Um, and you know, the whole thing, I mean, I, I, to be honest, I can't promise that I can make this material interesting to somebody who doesn't care about the goal. You know, if you don't care about change, this is boring. Um, but if you do, if you really care and you want to understand what's going on, similar to a, a football manual, you know, if you just flip them through there, you know, it's all boring, but if you really want to learn, it's interesting. So the four dimensions of thought. This is pretty familiar stuff, I just want to break it down into the categories. First dimension of thought is information, just facts. Stuff you know about the world or stuff you don't know about the world. Information is either present, you know you've got good information, or it's lacking. And if it's lacking, then there's consequences. In some instances, it's costly to lack information. I don't know if you've ever bought something that you already owned, but you forgot you owned it, and you bought it somewhere and you bought it again. Lack that piece of information, you forgot it, so it's costly. In other instances, Lacking information is time consuming. This was this was actually just this morning a few hours ago, about 6:45. Um, I'm walking down the, the stairs to the train platform, and you hear that sound. The train coming, the heart starts to beat faster. You're listening to the express train or the local train. It's local, it's slowing down. So I start running down the stairs. I've got my cards, and I've got like a uh, Metro card that's linked to the bank account, you know, so I've, I've got that on a clip of, of credit cards and stuff and my hands are really cold and the train's coming and I pull it out and I drop the clip and then I can't find the card because it's stuck, it's stuck so thin, it sticks to, it's stuck to the back of the credit card. So there were two other regular Metro cards, we pull the ones in there for some reason, I don't know why, so I said, I'll, I'll try these. So the train's coming, try the first one, insufficient fare. And now it's, you know, it's in the station, it's stopping. Try the second one, it's a pretty fair. The doors are opening. And it's Sunday morning, it's 20 minutes until the next train comes. I know, I've sat there on a freezing cold platform before. So I find, I find the car, step to the back of the credit card, swipe it, run through the turnstile, get through the doors as they're closing, and I look up and it's the wrong train. <laughs> There's only one train that runs on that platform every day except for today. Except for today, there was a different train. Train on that platform was on the wrong train. It's confusing. I lacked that key piece of information. Didn't have time to look up and see what the letter was on the side of the train. I've never even been in that situation even so you know, when you get on. This train's not moving in the south between Chamber Street and 50th Street. It would have been nice to know that before I got on, since I'm getting off the 34th. So lacking information is time consuming. And then, you know, in, in some instances it can be deadly. The most famous example from medical history is this this story of these women always dying after childbirth, and nobody could figure out what was going on and kind of figure out, well. Doctors were going directly from surgery into delivering the baby without washing their hands first. Just lacking information. Didn't know. We didn't know that crucial piece of information, and so there were consequences. First dimension of thought is information. You have accurate information, you don't. The second dimension of thought is reasoning. That's taking different bits of information you've got and putting them together to come up with new things that you don't want to get. So there's EF reasoning. You know, if A, then B, A, therefore B, that kind of stuff, mathematical. If, you know, I, I can only take the Holland Tunnel or the Lincoln Tunnel, I can't take the Lincoln Tunnel, so I have to take the Holland Tunnel, that type of thing. And there's inductive reasoning, you know, gathering the different bits of data and coming up with conclusions. 
looks like there's nobody in that restaurant, it's probably closed, that sort of thing. The reasoning can either be sound or it can be faulty. You can have faulty reasoning. You can make connections that exist only in your mind and that don't exist in reality. I honked the horn and then the light turned green, therefore, me honking the horn made the light turn green. Well, that's false. Everybody knows that's false. That's clearly false. But people reason like that. People reason like that, and you don't see your faulty reasoning as you do. So there's, there's information, there's reasoning. The third dimension of thought is ideas. And ideas are somewhat deeper and broader than information. And they extend somewhat beyond our reasoning. We can give reasons for our ideas, but we can't necessarily prove them mathematically. So one example of an idea is small government is better than big government. Simply, you hear a lot about during elections. Small government is, big, is better than big government. Maybe that's true, maybe it's not, I don't know. It's not information, it's not a fact, it's not something you can just observe. And it's, and it's not something you can prove by reasoning. You can argue for it, but at the end of the day, you kind of just have to believe it. Um, you might have reasons that you believe it, but it's in some ways an article of faith, and then it shapes the way you see the world. These ideas come in, and you see the world through them. Ideas are lenses that everything else is kind of filtered through. We have all sorts of ideas that operate on us, that are within us. We don't even realize. We just see them as reality because we become so accustomed to them. So one idea, for example, is um, there's an idea in America that success equals um, greater and greater economic prosperity and career opportunity for you and then for your children and for their children. That's what success is. We know that. It's an idea, but it's become so natural to us that it's just reality. So if you said to somebody, well, I've been really successful, and they said, why do you say that? I said, well, he, you know, he owns his other business, it's really profitable, and all this stuff is profitable. And, and the other person says, well, why do you say it's successful? He's like, what do you mean? That success, that is success. You don't even have to have a second thought linking it. You just assume that success. These ideas that govern the way we see the world, these assumptions, freedom, justice, prosperity, these things that are just part of our makeup, part of our mental landscape. We don't even know how to got Information, reasoning, ideas, and the last thing is images. Images are kind of like a sister ideas, and what's great about images, the power of images, is that they can make an impression on us without us really kind of turning on our critical faculties and examining us so they can kind of slip off, they can hypnotize, they can obsess over an image. And an image can kind of make an idea concrete and make it a lot more powerful. So if you saw, you're watching TV, you saw up on the screen, black screen, and white words come up that says, drinking a Corona will make you feel as though you're on an exclusive tropical beach. You'd read that and you'd think, well, that's an idea. That's probably false. <laughs> probably false. And that would be the end of it. But if you see a person drinking a corona sitting on an exclusive tropical beach, you believe that idea without it. You know what? You associate. You know, we, you know, we all know how this works. We've all been and inferred by Don Creeper and these matters. So everybody understands Everybody understands this stuff now. So you've got information, you've got reasoning, you've got ideas, you've got images. There's four different types of mental materials, four dimensions of thought. What's the point of talking about all of those different categories? Well, the first point is to just 
make the observation that in each one of these dimensions, in each of these categories, our thinking can, can either conform to reality or cannot. We can have, that's kind of one of the cool things about thoughts. They can, they can match the way things really are, or they cannot. We can have the right information, we cannot have it. We can be reasoning soundly, or we can be using false things. We can have true ideas or false ideas. We can have accurate images or corrupted images. There's not, it's not necessarily true that the way you see the world is the way the world really is. And we don't like that. We don't like to admit that. We just like to think of ourselves as having this really accurate, grounded picture of reality. I don't know how the world works. But the truth is, no. We're all lacking key pieces of information. We're all believing false things. All of us. That's the first point, is just to, to make the observation that there's a gap between reality and the way we see reality. And the second point where I want to move now is to show how spiritually our thinking has been corrupted along all four of these dimensions. And each of these four categories have been attacked and just kind of created the problems. So to do that, what I want to do is on, on your program, there's a passage, the first passage from Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at. If you've been around the last year, um, this is a very familiar story to you. We've looked at, we started looking at this passage. Last January, actually, we looked at it maybe seven or eight times since then. Um, it's come up in every single series, and I think we can find it seems to not be irrelevant, not be relevant anymore. Um, the, the angle I want to take on this morning is looking at specifically with regard to our thinking in this four dimensions of this mission. So I'll, I'll read this in the and some observations along with Genesis chapter 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, we replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat it, or you touch it, it can be more bad. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. So, pause there. He starts with information. He starts by conflicting the information that she's received. She's got good information. She's got two pieces of good information. The first piece of good information is what God said, which is, we need any tree but this one. The second piece of good information she's got is, eat this tree, you'll die. And Satan starts by conflicting both of those pieces of information, trying to cast doubt on the good info she's got. He starts by saying, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? He knows what God said. He knows God didn't say that. He knows what God said. He, she was there. She, she comes to Satan on the next line. He's casting doubt on it. She knows what God said. And he's, he's throwing out this other idea. She's, he's making her doubt what she really did. And then there's this, this bit about God saying, if you eat the tree, you'll die. And he says, that's not true. That's the that's false information. Real information is you won't die. God says, you'll die if you eat this tree. And Satan says, you will not die if you eat from this tree. You will not die if you eat all the <laughs> so he's first he attacks the, the information that he received. Then moving on, now he's now he's looking for two ideas, the images and images. You won't die, the serpent replied to him. He says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both the people. And a lot going on these couple of lines. First, God knows. God knows that your eyes will be open. His first idea that he suggests to her is that Eve, not only did God give you false information, 
was a mistake. He knew he was giving you false information. He knew he was, he was telling you something that wasn't the case. He was delivering this information. And the idea, the idea that Satan is suggesting here, the idea that has largely governed the human race ever since, is this idea that God cannot be trusted, and that you have to take your well-being into your hands, that you have to look out for yourself. That's the idea he suggests. And then he, he backs it up with some images and with some healing. God knows that your eye will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God. There's this image in front of her of being like God. She knows who God is, she knows God's beauty and power, and he says, you can be like that. Think of yourself in those terms. Address your self-image and think of yourself like God. And then here's the false reasoning. Knowing both good and evil. It's true. It's true that if she says a fruit, fruit shall know both good and evil. He says earlier, your eyes will be opened. And it's true. Her eyes will be opened. Her eyes will be opened and she will know both good and evil. So he starts with that premise, which is accurate, and then he reasons in a faulty way from it. His, his reasoning is, if you're like God in that regard, knowing good and evil, your eyes being opened, then you'll be like God in that regard. Just bad argument. Just faulty logic. If you're like God in that regard, you'll be like God in every regard. That's what he's suggesting here. And the truth is, if you're like that God in that regard, it happens to be the case that you will become less like God in every other regard. You'll screw everything else up. But he, he reasons in this faulty way, he attacks her reasoning, and she goes for it. The next line, the woman was convinced. And then here's some more images. She saw the tree was beautiful, and its fruit looked delicious. She's taking those ideas she just got, and, and putting those in, in what she's seeing, and she wanted the wisdom of the giver, so she took some of The move away from God begins in our thoughts. The move, the, the move as a human race away from God began in our thinking, and the move away from God as an individual begins in our thoughts. It begins in our thinking. Satan doesn't hit Eve with stick. It's a an idea. It's a with bad information. It's a with bad arguments. He hits her with these corrupted images. That's his plan. That's his plan of attack. That's the way he, he wants to kind of take over. And if you look on the program in the next passage down in under next to the two, this is St. Paul talking to the church of Ephesus. He says, put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. But we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly, heavenly places. And, and what Paul is saying here is it's still happening today. So, you know, the same type of attack is still happening today. You say, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if I can go through there. You know what? Dark powers. Of unseen world in this dark world, evil, evil spirits. Sounds like something from Lord of the Rings. You know? Sounds like fantasy. Like, that's the last time I heard about this stuff. I mean, that's fine. Yeah. You know, you can fine. You will just continue to be dominated. You will continue to be dominated by the stuff that you don't understand as your thinking is attacked, as your, your mind is made to see the world increasingly in a way that is very different from reality. And that's what Satan's doing. God presents a true world, and Satan is making you see the world in a different way. It's distant from how it really is. If you don't admit that that's happening, if you don't take measures to prevent it from happening, it will happen. But the hope, what we talked about last week, the hope of God then helps you renew your mind, 
I'm coming back to the truth. Look at the man passing down. The God of this age, that's, that's the devil. The God of this age has blinded the minds. So here is again the same concept. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. But God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine out of hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. So it is God who kind of remakes your mind, shines the light, gives the darkness to spell, and you start to see the world in a true and realistic light again. You flip your, your insert over, you see uh, next to number three there, this is a consistent theme all throughout the New Testament, this renewal of our thinking. Romans 12, pretty famous passage, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good, is and hurtful. This is something Christians ask all the time. How do I know what God is? How do I know what God wants me to do? Well, sometimes, very rarely, almost never, sometimes, God, by the Spirit, will speak directly into your heart and tell you what to do. Almost never happens. The way it's supposed to happen is your mind is transformed. Your mind is renewed. And as your mind is renewed, as you start to see the world accurately again, you're able to test and approve what God's will is happening to you. Paul says in Philippians 2, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. The exact opposite of being to be. He wanted equality with God, he wanted to grasp it. He's saying, have the mind of Christ, have the mind of Christ, who didn't consider it something to be grasped. And then finally, from 1 Corinthians 2, who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul's quoting there, a, a common saying, and then he counters, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have Jesus in our lives. We can have the mind of Christ. We can start to see the world accurately. So that's the last thing I want to talk about this morning with the coming out of is, is how you do this. We're talking about cooperating with God. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't just happen automatically. You don't just pray. You don't just say, God, give me the mind of Christ. It doesn't happen overnight. So how do you let this happen? How do you move from corrupted thinking, where you see the world kind of darkly and nothing is really as it is in reality, the enlightened thinking, where God has shown his light in your mind, where you have the mind of Christ, where you see things as they really are, how do you cooperate with that process? And uh, um, this is going to be very disappointing, but I, I do not have anything novel to say here. The, the only answer is that you have to seek yourself. You have to immerse yourself in the information, the ideas, the reasoning, and the images of Holy Scripture. All of that build up, just so you can tell me that I need to be I knew that. I knew that before I came. You're going to do all that just to say that I should read the Bible more. But I'm not saying that categorically. I'm not saying categorically, no matter what, you should read the Bible more. Maybe you should read. You should read the Bible more to get if you want these goals. So it's not you You should read the Bible more if you really care about changing. I felt guilty for years about not doing these Christian things that I was supposed to do and I could, could never do them. And I finally realized the problem was that there were things about myself that I didn't like, sure. Um, but I was kind of mostly okay with myself. I wasn't really desperate to change. Reading the Bible is way too hard, way too confusing, 
way too challenging to do unless you have a very clear sense of what you're after. Unless you feel this aching in your soul of, wow, I, I really can't live with being like this another Wow, I really feel far from home, from where I want to be. Wow, I, I really don't want to see things in such a mess up way. Unless you have that thinking, unless you have a sense of the way your mind is being attacked, of how clouded your thinking has become, it's too hard. It's too hard to read the Bible. It's too hard to really immerse yourself in it. But if you do, if you do want those things, then there's just really no other path. No one has ever had their thinking straightened out. No human being, and listen to what I'm about to say, no human being has ever had their thinking straightened out without Scripture, without Scripture doing that process. You look on your, your program, next to the five there, this is what the psalmist talked about all, all the time, we're skipping down a little bit. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path, and it's from Psalm 19. The instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul, the decrees of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. Scripture elevates you. It makes your mind back into the shape that you design. It puts you straight again. Um, and this is, this is, by the way, true, even if, even for people who are, are so-called skeptics, even if you're not kind of religious, this has been true historically. Jefferson famously wrote the Scripture 30 minutes a day, reading different translations to try to get um, different insights from Lincoln, you know, people, same thing you all have asked, how did Lincoln deliver these speeches that just were so real and so raw and so in touch with how things really were, and we still read hundreds of years later, how did this uneducated guy do that? And more than one biographer has pointed out, well, you know, I have something to do with that, if you're a poor, you only have one book, you read it over and over and over again, and it takes your mind so bent out of shape and straightened it out. Puts it back the way it's supposed to be. So you actually start to see it straightened. Lord Tennyson said, the Bible, reading the Bible is an education in itself. It, it's a great education. It puts your mind back the way it's It elevates you. It changes your thinking along all four of those dimensions we mentioned earlier. If you look at the passage, the passages in the six there, I want to show you all four of these dimensions of Scripture. The first is the information from Romans 10, how they believe in Him when they haven't heard. You have to know, you have to know the basic facts of God's redemptive history. The second, and it's mentioned there again when in Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And then you see ideas and reasoning from Romans 8. If God is for us, that's an idea. There's an idea out there that God is against you, and the Bible says God is for us. It develops that idea of death. God is for us, who can never be against us. Since he did not spare even his own son, he gave it on for us all. Won't he also give us everything else? That's an argument. He's saying, since he did this great thing, he's going to definitely do this lesser thing. It's classical rhetoric. It's an a fortiori argument. And all through scripture, there's this reasoning, this reasoning by Paul, by Jesus, this reshaping the way you reason so that it's accurate again. And then finally, and perhaps most important scripture, you see from Matthew 13. Jesus talking, the kingdom of heaven is life, the kingdom of heaven is life, the kingdom of heaven is life. All over the interests, the stories, the pictures he's given. When you grasp on them, then you're in the mind, you're in the So with the couple minutes that we have left, I want to pull out this white insert in the program here. We don't usually close this way, 
Um, I don't usually give you such specific homework, but in this series in particular, I feel like it's important to do that. So, for today's topic, um, I want to introduce this morning the LMCC scripture reading plan um, that I put together this week. And I want to tell you why I think it might work for you or other scripture reading plans. Now, this is a little bit of a story. You tell me anything I give you or tell you, I'm stealing from somebody else much wiser than myself, so I feel pretty sick. This is just kind of all my own ideas here, so it could be, could be really bad. Or it could be great. We'll, we'll find out. So, uh, problems with scripture reading plans, typically. This, this, this section could also be titled, Ways Ryan Has Failed in the Past. Um, number one, there's seven days a week. I don't do anything seven days a week. I, I don't eat dinner seven days a week, and dinner's my favorite part of the day. So seven days a week is, is impossible. This plan is, is structured on four days a week instead of seven. For longer readings because of that. I, but I think it's easier to, to block out half an hour, four days a week, than 15 minutes, seven days a week. The second thing is 52 weeks a year is, is not going to work um, for the exact same reason. You just have these off weeks. And there's just kind of no end in sight that you to give up. So this is structured as uh, in quarters, four 10-week quarters for a total of 40 weeks. So it's four readings a week, 40 weeks total, and 10 quarters. You know, this quarter goes from Alpha Easter, and from Easter until the end of the school year, in the summer, and then from the beginning of the school year until uh, Thanksgiving. The the other problem with the trading plans, the third problem, is that all of the readings are the same length. The problem with that is that all the material in scripture is not of equal importance. So you spend half a day reading the same sermon on the mount, and then you spend you know 25 days in the prophets in the Old Testament. And um, I think you should read the prophets. I just think you should read them all more quickly. You should read the sermon on the mount a lot more slowly. So uh, these selections on the, in the first five weeks are kind of a similar length, but they're going to vary a lot more as we get going. Um, the other problem, the fourth problem, the scripture reading plans is that the, the readings don't break at natural places. You know, it's, it's based on this kind of three chapters a day or one chapter a day thing, and then you kind of stop in the middle and start in the middle. So we're going to structure these readings kind of at logical breaking points. And then the last problem is that the, the readings never have any context or background. So if you sign up for this, if you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it this year, I'm going to do this plan, every week we'll get an email with kind of like three sentences introducing each reading, giving some key information to, to make it make sense. The last problem is people really underestimate how hard it is. And it's kind of beyond, you know, again, back to the last week of false advertising. So they stand up and say, mm, 15 minutes a day. Not easy. Not easy at all. Because what you're doing is you're throwing yourself into a totally different world where everything looks different from the way you've been taught to see it. It's like you've been hanging upside down your whole life and you turned right side up. You're going to walk around for six months with vertigo and nothing's going to make any sense. And that's what reading the scripture is like. It's very confusing at first. It's very disorienting. It's very hard. It's very challenging. It's very long. It's insanely long. I probably didn't explain to you. I've mentioned this before. This here is a is a Bible um, printed in, in volumes that are on normal size paper and without kind of the really tiny type. So you've got the different parts of scripture all bound separately. 
the Torah, the first five. This is just the the first five books of the Bible right here. You know, this is longer book than most of you read all year. Um, just the first five books, the Torah, and then the writings and the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, and then that's the Bible Jesus read, and then the Bible that believers have read since Jesus, the New Testament, the Epistles and the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, and John's Revelation. It's big, and you're not talking, you know, when we talk about it as being an education, it's not a book, it's not one book, it's a library. It's a library, and it's not going to be easy found in one volume, but it's really big, really big. So I don't, I'm not, I'm not going to, um, you know, some of you are like, okay, now I can level the hand. Convince me that I really need to do this. You know, lay on the pressure. Say, I'm not really a Christian if I don't do it. I'm not going to do this. I don't want anybody to start it. That they committed to having that thinking things coming. If you don't believe in the goal, then don't bother. I'm not interested in how many people start it. I am interested in how many people finish. And it's, it's a really powerful thought when you think about our church. The year come Thanksgiving of this year when a number of us have had our thinking reshaped by scripture. Of course, it's just the beginning and the next year and next year after that. So this is the first five weeks of the eight of these all together. This is the first half of the winter quarter. It goes through Genesis, the book of Genesis and Exodus, which is really good reading, and the book of Matthew as well, which is also really good reading. So start easy. Um, and I will, if you sign up, I'll, I'll get you the email every week with the introduction to each section, and I'll be praying for you. So what you can do is just on the back of your info card, you can put um, scripture reading, write that on there and drop it in the box, or you can also sign up and you can reply to that as well. You don't usually end on that kind of note, that's super practical, um, if there's something you have to be done. You know, but in this series, I don't know how to cooperate with God. And it's just not possible. It won't happen in the life without God, I ask that you speak to those right now that you um, think are, are ready to undertake this project of having the mind reshaped. I ask that you would. Just gently nudge us, not out of guilt or um, instance of pressure, but you just gently nudge us and speak to us and, and make an impression on our heart if this is something we're supposed to do. We thank you for scripture. We thank you for the way that you've given us a tool for reshaping our thinking, for putting our minds back into the shape they were supposed to be originally. And I ask your blessing upon this undertaking that we're, we're going to do together. I ask that, you know, we're, we're trying to do our part. We're trying to participate with you. I ask that as, 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 as we as a church put ourselves in your word, that you would 